I hope this is this is okay talking about your brother. Um, I really don't want to make you too sad. So um, I know, and and you know, I I will just let you know that um, sometimes I just don't feel it coming, and I I get sad because well, yeah. it hasn't been all that long. But I'm really looking forward to talking about what an incredibly he was just a goofball, and he was a really good guy and funny to be with, and he wasn't all about you know, the dark genius at all. Yeah. And just, so. I get that sense even just from reading him. Um, so listen, if there's if you get uncomfortable, there's anything I ask that you don't want to answer, you don't want to go there, or at a certain point you just feel like, you know, that's enough. This is getting too painful. Then we'll stop. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. Okay. And the nice thing about doing it on tape is, you know, you can stop and start. So Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, and hey, before I forget, Veronica said to make sure to ask you, um, is there any particular, I mean, like what music, what bands did your brother like a lot? Because I know she might want to weave some music into this. Oh, oh, oh. Um, he really he really liked Pearl Jam a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because once in a while he haunts my radio and these songs. Okay, I... I um, challenge you to find this one. There was um, a cover of Our Lips Are Sealed by Funboy 3 that he <laughs> listened to over and over and over again one summer. Um, he also loved the group Madness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was he, he kind of got stuck in the 80s and 90s. Oh, Flaming Lips. He loved the Flaming Lips. Mm-hmm. We could be a little more, uh, a little more modern with that. I've already met his... What was it? He met his editor for the first time wearing a U2 T-shirt? Yeah, actually, that was one that, that I got in Australia for him. And it was um, Australian T-shirts back then were made of just hideous quality, sort of part trash bag and part burlap. And so he wore that thing until it fell apart. But, um, yeah, I loved that story because I know exactly what shirt that was and when that was. That's fun. Yeah, so many journalists have tried to describe your brother I guess I'd really love to hear it from you. I mean, how how would you describe him to someone who had never met him? I think I would describe him as um, somebody who, if you talk to him for just a few minutes, you would think that he had just come out of a space capsule somewhere because there was always a sense of, of um, everything. He reacted to everything as if it were slightly foreign and as if there were customs that that he just didn't quite understand, even though he was a a good Midwestern boy, um, socially somewhat accomplished. Um, But he would do things like if he went to a party, he'd take a book with him. Um, He would never use an ATM machine because he didn't get it. Um, And the, the way... He dressed. He refused to be uncomfortable. He would only wear 100% cotton fibers next to his body. Um, but he he was probably um, the best listener I have ever met in my life. He loved to sit down and talk to people about anything. And he wasn't just, you know, nodding and, and looking at his watch. Um, and I don't think he ever wore a watch. But uh, he he really, really just loved to hear p- 
people's stories, to gather little gobbets of information from wherever they might come from. Um, and he was just very, very silly, very um, – he, he always had, had a conviction that, that he should be more masculine than he was um, and was always um, – well, well, and possibly um, – well, this is getting a little off, off topic, but he was very strange about his, his hair um, – and he went through a phase where he would wear it in a top knot, and this, this was just appalling to to everybody close to him. If you had to go out in public with him, and here was this he was he was big, um, and he'd do this top knot thing, and he looked like a, a starving sumo wrestler. Basically, it was just an insanely bad look for him. And it took a lot of, you know, sort of gentle cajoling to say, you know, David, don't take this the wrong way. And we know, you know, that, that this is no reflection on, on your your masculinity or anything like that. But um, it just looks dumb. You you cannot go out with, with your hair in a top knot. <laughs> and um, this this happened. This was like 10 years ago. He, he went through very strange periods with his hair. And I think... He always washed it with um, ivory or Safeguard soap. He would not use hair products, <laughs> even though he he lived with a cosmetologist and had you know at his fingertips such an array of fabulous products. But uh, he was suspicious of the whole the whole shampoo game. So, um, what was he like as a, as a big brother when you were growing up? He was um, sort of. Benevolently sadistic, if that makes any sense at all. Um, he very much enjoyed figuratively pulling my wings off and then watching what happened. Um, he knew every button to push to make me hysterical. He was, you know, two years older and that much smarter, and he was always a lot bigger than I was. Are there um, were there are there family stories of epic battles or? things he did that were especially effective <laughs> well um he i i really loved the the partridge family when i was a kid and um we didn't get that that uh channel very well and so i i would camp out in front of the tv and all during the brady bunch be fiddling with the rabbit ears or whatever and, and david would just be sort of lurking in the corner waiting and um, the Partridge family would come on, and he would spring in front of the television and do an absolutely killer impression of David Cassidy singing into a microphone. And it just it ruined the whole thing for me. He, he was an incredible mime, and he could make he could do me, he could do my parents, he could do my father's colleagues. Um, and um, but when probably the, the funniest thing that, that he did when he was a kid um, on the during the long, gray, boring winters when there just isn't that much to do. Um, once in a while, he would decide that 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 day he wasn't going to be David; he was going to be Captain Flem and his sidekick Goat Bile, um, and he would be both of them at once. And I don't really remember what their purpose was or what if they had superpowers <laughs> or what they actually did, but. Um, I can still 
you know, shudder thinking I used to beg my brother to be allowed to be goat bile on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon. And I, I wasn't worthy. He would do them both himself. But um, uh, he, he, he could make his own fun. And he absolutely knew how, if, if, if he couldn't make his own fun, he knew how to torment um, me to maximum amusing effect for him. Did you know when when you were growing up that he was different or special? Um, um, I I certainly thought he was different, um, simply because he just at, at at the dinner party. I'm sorry, at the dinner table, he would. My parents would be talking about. Um, what went on at work that day, and they were both academics, and David would always jump in and, and you know, talk as if he were sort of a peer, and I would sit there and push the peas around on my plate and think, you know, why can't we just talk about what's on TV tonight or something? But um, he was always very, very, very maddeningly intelligent. Um, he was also a big jock, though, right? Wasn't that a big part of him... Uh- what he who he was in junior high high school the tennis thing was was really really um huge for him um he was before that he was on um a little league baseball team um that was sponsored by the local dairy it was called the meadow gold team and they held the record for being shut out the most number of times um when when David was on that team. But then he discovered tennis. We both took tennis lessons at the Park District, and he was really, really good at it. And, um, in fact, when I, I think when he was 16 and I was 14, his summer job was teaching tennis lessons, which was really fairly cushy. You know, he'd do 45 minutes with the 50-year-old women at 10 in the morning, and then he'd do the kids in the afternoon. And I would get up at 5 in the morning and detassel corn and come home, you know, all sweaty with with chaff in my hair. And David would come breezing up on his gleaming 10 speed and sort of toss the hair out of his eyes and say, oh, I think I made probably three times as much money as you did today. And then (laughs) <laughs> I, I worked maybe two hours. It was awfully dark when you left the house this morning, wasn't it? Um, so I always found it very, very funny. Um, he did truly love the Midwest, but but whenever he would sort of do the homespun Midwestern boy, I would see him, you know, immaculate, breezing off of his bike as I struggled back from the field. And, you know. <laughs> there was, in one article I read, he described himself as, a kind of dirt bomb growing up, but maybe dirt bomb is actually a a, a technical term. Well, um, he he could move pretty smoothly between different social groups in our high school. So you know, of course, jocks always have their niche, and so he could do the jock thing. But he also, and I don't know if you really want to go there, but he was something of an incredible pothead um, in junior high and high school. And so he had those friends, too. And, um, you know, he he moved very easily back and forth between them. I think he felt more more at ease with the sort of scruffy, flannel-wearing, pot-smoking kids than he did with the the jocks. Hmm. 
What was a dirt bomb? I mean, was that a real term? No, actually, the term when we were a kid was grits. If somebody was kind of um, unkempt and and uh, not too bright, that um, they were called a grit. And I think he, I I think he chose the word dirt bomb instead, so that maybe some of his his young his peers from the younger days reading that wouldn't feel bad. I don't know. So your family, another thing I've read about your family is um, that's sort of remarkable. Um, it, you kind of had your own unique language, didn't you? Yeah. My my mother, um, when we were kids, just she had an unusual word for um, both actions and objects. And I think David and I were well into our elementary school years before we realized that not everybody understood those words. And I remember having arguments with friends, you know, saying that when um, that, that a, a comforter, the thing that, that's on the bed is actually really called, the technical term is a, it's a puff, it's not a comforter. And you don't, um, you don't get up in the morning, you stir your stumps. And, um, I, you know, I can't think of, of, of all of them, but my mother, you know, when, whenever she is around or whenever David and I were together, you just sort of fall into it. And you, you don't realize the little family things and how unique they are until you realize that they are unique and there are maybe four people in the world who would understand an entire paragraph of those terms. So your um, mom, your mom was an English professor, right, or English teacher? Yes. So the all the the neologisms and the language clearly comes from her. What about um, your dad, the philosophy professor? My my dad had a very um, a, a very dry, delightful sense of humor. Um, he. He's a very quiet person, and so when he would say something uh, unexpected, it was inevitably very, very funny. Um, Did his David seems to have inherited um, almost some of each of your parents' professions? I mean, your mother's love of and delight in language and playing with words, and your dad's capacity for abstract thought. Yes. Yeah, um, he he really was sort of the the perfect distillation there, and I just sort of gave it up in college. I thought, great, I don't have to worry about taking philosophy classes just to 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 make Dad think there's there's hope that that the torch will carry forth. And because, sorry, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. So your your brother had his first brush with depression when he was still living at home. Do you remember that time? Yes, yes, I do. Um, he um, had left for college, um, and he came back his sophomore year in the middle of the year unexpectedly. And this this just stunned all of us. We had absolutely no idea that he what he was going through and what he was struggling with. And that was a very um, memorable and difficult time. Had you 
known that he had you seen signs earlier when he was a boy or still living at home as a teenager that that he was capable of experiencing that much pain that much mental pain or did it seem like something that just kind of struck out of the blue well he was especially when he got to be a teenager he was a very very volatile and moody teenager um then when but he was very very secretive too um and so it's it's i think that that he was having all of these feelings um certainly beginning in his senior year of 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 high school um there were just little little things um but i i think when he went off to college he was just adding the homesickness to that and um he was very much a perfectionist um and between the expectations the incredibly high expectations he held out for himself and just missing um you know suddenly being on on the east coast surrounded by people with completely different frames of reference and um i don't think he had any idea how how homesick that experience was going to be and i think that contributed to it and just made it unbearable made him realize i i have to to go home for a while that must have and been so, really that must have been really hard for you as as little sister it was, to see your big brother come home like that it was really scary because um you know he he'd always been um big and strong and he could do anything and uh it was very difficult but i do remember that that was really when we began talking to each other and he tried to describe what had happened and what he was feeling and what his fears were and made himself uh vulnerable i i think to to all of us and his family for the first time I didn't know he had talked much about it because from some of the things I read I had the impression that that he always felt sort of embarrassed by his depression. I think he was very embarrassed by his depression, but I do remember um when he came back from Amherst in the middle of the year we would sit in his bedroom when I got home from school and sometimes he would um get in my mom or dad's car and just drive around and try to find me and give me a ride home and then he would just talk about loneliness and um wondering how people get up every day and function at the time i think i was working at baskin robbins um and he said how how do you do that when somebody comes into the store and asks for an ice cream how how do you do that and not just want to run out the back door and it was it was very frightening um to think that 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 the depression could be so incredibly um powerful and that he would feel i had no idea that 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 anything could could make him feel that that diminished that hopeless um and then it it took a while but he had therapy and and medication and and got markedly better and then of But, course 
And then, of course, he had literary fame at really a pretty early um, point in his in his life. Did that help, or did it just add a whole pile more problems? Yeah. I don't think it helped. Um, I think he was he was really startled by that, and then just just felt even more pressure, which was all self self-imposed. My, my parents are not pushers at all. I mean, they always told us when we were kids is whatever you are when you grow up, we just want you to be happy. And David was very, very, very hard on himself. And he found that um, just, I, I think his his thought at the time was, "Oh, great! I, I've I've written this book, which isn't even very good." He ne- he never thought that "Girl with Curious Hair" was all that great. He thought it was a pretty good college thesis, um, and he was just afraid that that would be the one book that he would be able to write and get published, and and you know, he would much rather have had that happen later when he felt that he was a better writer. So what about later when, say, when he had Infinite Jest published? Well, um, I think he was, I think he was very, very proud of Infinite Jest. Uh, He certainly never said that, and he always deflected and downplayed um, what an incredible book that was, what an incredible wake-up call for for the book reading masses that that was um i think i think writing that book was a was a truly harrowing process for him though it took a i think it took an awful lot out of him it took a very very long time um and when you when you are the kind of person who is so very hard on yourself and in order to do what you want to do, you have to make yourself go sit cloistered in front of... I, I, I believe he wrote Infinite Jest longhand and then typed it himself. Which is amazing. His editor told me it's a million words. I believe it. Um, David actually paid me to proofread Infinite Jest, and he would mail me <laughs> these enormous... Envelopes, you know, this was this was before email. That would have simplified things a whole lot. Um, but um, he he just he would go through these incredible periods where he would produce so much, and then it would be a while before I got another enormous envelope. And he he needed me to proofread that, like you know, <laughs> like. Uh, I, I I can't even come up with a good analogy. He was perfectly. He was. I I think he was kind of throwing me a bone. And once in a while, he'd he'd um, miss an apostrophe or something, and I'd think, okay, David, I know you did that on purpose so that I could at least write something on the page there. And it sounds like I he remember, wanted. It sounds like he wanted to share what he wrote with his baby sister. I I think that's what was going on. I I do. And it was it was really very. That was the only time I was ever that aware of what he was working on and how it was going because he was very, very uh, secretive about his whole writing process. And he would never say, I'm working on a novel 
um, he would say, oh, I'm, there's this thing I'm trying to do. And that could be anything from an essay to a novel to, uh, you know, some sort of collection of short stories. And he would never give us a heads up if something was coming out in The New Yorker or in Harper's or, or wherever. He'd sort of open it up and say, oh, look, David's got a story there. Um, so that was a, a very, um, it, w- it was a, a wonderful, maddening experience to work on Infinite Jest with him because I also took him to task for his footnotes, which, of course, you know, um, was, I, I didn't prevail there in case nobody <laughs> noticed, but um, I, I just said to him, this is nuts. Nobody wants to read this tiny, tiny type and, and, you know, just come on, knock it off. It's annoying. Um, and so, of course, he didn't listen to me and wisely so. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think he did it all the more. <laughs> I think so, yeah. So maybe there Next you time you get an envelope with 30 books. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, so he was, uh, I know he had really, really rocky times um, throughout all, all those years. There were years that were good. I mean, he got, he got married and hmm. by all accounts had a really um, number of very stable, very happy years, um, which I think made all of his family and friends also very happy because it had taken him so long. Um, what was David Foster Wallace as a happy and fulfilled family guy like? It was it, it was neat to see. Um, he he definitely found the person for him in Karen, and she she got him on every level. She um, thought it was absolutely great that he dressed the way that he did, um, and it was nice nice to see him so happy. And I think he finally felt like. He he spent most of his life really not feeling like a grown-up. And marrying Karen, I think, soothed that that element of him. I don't think there was still a great sort of puckish, look at me, I'm someone's husband aspect to him at times. And a friend of his did tell... um, me and a number of David's other friends that that they would have breakfast once a month and and David would ask him for husband pointers because this this guy had been married for 15 years or so and David really wanted to be a good husband uh, and he he had a number of 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 wonderful wonderful years um and his his time with with Karen was uh, you know obviously it was it was far too short but it i could just see him for the first time in his life really feeling like he had a home that was his home as an adult whereas Is, before he just sort of lived in places and you know are there that, any are there any particular images that come to mind when you think of of David and his wife and those happier years together I yeah I think of them in the swimming pool um, and Karen would would make a 
you know, a fin out of her hands and then dive underwater and and pretend to be attacking David because David was horribly afraid of sharks. He had this this shark phobia. And when we were kids, we went and saw Jaws and David would would torture me all summer long with the, the theme music from Jaws. And we went to Lake Champlain and, you know, most most 10-year-olds would realize you're not going to be attacked by a shark in Lake Champlain. But being from the Midwest, this was one of the larger bodies of water I'd ever seen. And every time I I would jump in the water, he would start doing that dun-dun-dun-dun thing. And so Karen, I, I remember Karen being a shark and David sort of girlishly squealing and <laughs> and ineffectually slapping at at the water around her. And they they really knew how to how to play and, and have fun together. And their wedding itself was a, was a, a, a beautiful, um, silly affair. So that the last year before his suicide sounds like things, things hit bottom again. Um, the, the portrait that's kind of emerged of your brother is, is of a very, very brave, courageous person who tried to endure what felt unendurable, um, and, and who finally really just couldn't take it anymore. At least that's that's kind of how it's been reported. How would and you, how would you tell that, it? That is that is exactly. Um, that's he was very brave, and there. He really did try so hard. And when he when he did die, there was not a minute that I thought that I was angry at him or that if he'd only tried harder, I knew how hard he tried. I need a minute. I'm sorry. It's okay. Yeah. Sorry. It's okay. I should find a Kleenex too. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I think we're doing the show because the loss of, of your brother is, is a really big loss for an awful lot of people. And, you know, we didn't even know him, but it still feels like a light's gone out. Well, and that's something that thank you, that's that's really been been a source of comfort to us is to realize how many people loved him, and you know, running the gamut from um, people that that he would see at his local gym and just you know chat with to people who maybe met him once. Um, students from a student paper who were sent to interview him and and were terrified and then realized that David was the least terrifying person in the world um to just that there was an outpouring and and I I went to stay with my parents 
um, for the week after David died, and we got so many letters that would start off saying, um, pardon the intrusion, but um, we really loved David, and we want you to know that. And it wasn't an intrusion. Thanks. I just got a whole box of Kleenex brought to me. So so we don't leave you with <laughs> you having to walk out there in tears. Um, when you remember him and, and, and you want to remember the good parts and not feel sad, um, you know, and, and just remember him with, with some lightness in your heart, um, what sort of things do you think of? I think about um, – I forgot to blow my nose here. Hang on a second. Sometime in the 80s, we drove cross-country together, and he had, I think, a Volkswagen Rabbit, and he was pulling a trailer that had his com- his computer in it. And um, <laughs> David was a sort of nervous driver, and um, – he had made it clear when we set out on this trip. We, we were going from – I was in school at Virginia at the time, and he was moving back to Tucson. And we met up in Illinois and then drove from, from Illinois to Tucson with his computer. And he was terribly afraid that – it was summertime. He was terribly afraid that his computer was going to be damaged by the heat. So there were very strict rules about what time we would hit the road and, and things like that. And he, he – he said that under no circumstances would I ever get to drive because if, God forbid, something happened, and of course it wouldn't be my fault, he would never forgive me for, for damaging his computer. So um, this was a very long trip because David really did drive 55. Um, that was back in the day when that was the speed limit. And his radio was, was awful. It was an AM radio, and so we had this this boom box with tapes in it and um, we ran out of batteries at one point and we were in Texas and David didn't want to stop. Um, when when we were kids, I think everybody had these family vacations. Um, my mom always called my dad the wagon master, you know, okay, we're, we're getting on the road and, you know, no talk about peeing for at least seven hours um, and swallow your spit and, and all that. Um, but... Uh, so so we we ran out of batteries. David was not going to stop because we had to go at least 200 more miles before we could have dinner or whatever, you know, the fabulous prize was at the end there, and buy batteries. So he decided he was going to teach me to sing harmony, and I didn't want to learn how to sing harmony. And we were stuck in this tiny Volkswagen Rabbit in Texas as the sun was setting, and David had a lovely singing voice, and he was actually in the Glee Club at Amherst um, uh, with Prince Albert of Monaco, actually. A um, little tidbit there. Um, but so we're driving along, and David say, no, really, Amy, it's, you can learn how to do this, and then we can just sing wonderful harmonies for the rest of the trip. And I said, I don't want to sing wonderful harmonies for the rest of the trip. I want to get batteries, you know. Let's just stop at the I, – I see a store right there. No, no, no. When I go, ah, you go, ah. You know, and, and this went on for 200 miles. And I, 
I, you know, said, David, I don't want to learn how to sing harmony. And he wouldn't stop. And so finally, I, I grudgingly tried to make the, the reach the unlikely pitch he was expecting me to, to reach and sustain. And he did finally, thank God, give up on me. And I think he bought me a hostess cupcake when we finally got the batteries and apologized. But I just think about that. And um, that's just kind of David in a nutshell. You know, he had ideas about he, – he was just so fussy about some things. And um, if he decided that something was a good idea with all evidence to the contrary, I – I am tone deaf. I was never going to learn how to sing harmony in that car, and I was pissed off. I, I didn't. I didn't want to, but um, I will never forget that. And whenever I, I start thinking, you know, oh God, this is just so sad, and this is so awful. I think of being in that Volkswagen Rabbit, and I think, you know, I I will never ever regret having. David for a brother, and I've got um, wonderful memories, and uh, I can still, I can still hear his voice in my head, not in a scary, mentally ill kind of way, but I, he had a very distinctive, soft, lovely voice, and whenever he'd call me on the phone, he'd say, "Hey, Aim," and once in a while, I just hear that, and you know, he's there. I hope he stays with you forever. Thanks. You will. Thank you. Oh, we probably both need a big cry now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I wish we were in person. It's, it's really hard to say goodbye. Um, well, anyway, it's... so thank you very, very much. You were extremely generous to share that much with us, and I'm very grateful to you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Take care. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.